Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Glenn Fisher, arguably the most famous person to be born in Grimsby by default. Glenn became a copywriter after a number of years working in the local council. For over a decade, he worked with Agora, a multi-million pound international financial publisher as head of copy. He is now freelance, focusing on coaching aspiring copywriters and has recently published his first book, The Art of the Click, which explores direct response copywriting. It's received glowing endorsements from some of the best, including previous Call to Action guests Richard Shotton and Vicky Ross, who describes it as an effortless but brilliant one-to-one masterclass. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on. I'm just thinking uh, Kevin Clifton's not going to be happy uh, saying I'm the most famous person from Grimsby. (laughs) Probably Tommy Tergoot as well, but uh, the famous copywriter. Uh, okay, I'm going to be a famous copywriter. It's a good title <laughs> to have, regardless of where you're born. So, quick fire questions coffee or tea? Tea, Earl Grey. Mac or PC? Mac these days. Book or Facebook? Book, 100%. Notepad or iPad? Ooh, uh, iPad, uh, although I should say notebook, it's cool. <laughs> be honest. Yeah, no, iPad, iPad. Jonathan Ross or Vicky Ross? Oh, Vicky Ross, all day long. Korma or Vindaloo? Vindaloo, absolutely. P.G. Woodhouse or Ernest Hemingway? Ooh. Um, I'll, do you know what? I'm going to go for P.G. Woodhouse. Why is that? I'm, I'm going to go for P.G. Woodhouse because I think if I was stuck on a kind of desert island situation, I think I'd probably want more laughs than um, thinking too much. So I'd, I'd go for P.G. Woodhouse on that, that account. That's good logic. But that's a tough one. That's why we left it to last. <laughs> um, so how did it all start for you, Glenn? So we like, to, um, we like to ask all our guests to talk us through their first ever job and then the first job which was relevant to what they do now. So do you remember your first job and how that led into copywriting? Um, well, I remember my very first job was uh, delivering the local newspaper um, which used to get dropped off at my house, and I cried the first time I ever saw like 500 copies of this paper, and I had to hand them out. But that's uh, kind of childhood jobs. My first proper job was in finance. I was uh, an auditor for the uh, local council, and prior to my copywriting career, I wanted to be a kind of bank manager. I wanted to be an accountant of some description. I, I don't know what was quite wrong with me, but... But that was my ambition, and I was pursuing that and managed using nepotism. My mum's always worked in the local council, was able to get a job, and became an auditor. I was training to be an accountant, doing the AT&T or whatever the accounting qualifications were, was kind of uh, going into local council offices, into various departments, into local schools, analysing their finances, uh, looking at the financial controls and systems they had in place, writing reports about them and making recommendations. Bear in mind, this was like a 22-year-old kid. I was was just out of sixth form college. I don't know if you even say sixth form college anymore. I don't know if that's a thing, but whatever A-level period study is, I I did that. I didn't go to university originally and uh, was doing that. And that was my job. Um, How that has any relation to copywriting, we still don't quite know. Um, It did help that uh, when I kind of landed in the financial copywriting niche, um, that knowledge was helpful. But but yeah, I was doing that for probably, I don't know, the maths don't really work out and I I don't understand how old I am, how long (laughs) I spent in various periods. At the same time as doing that job, I I wasn't completely just a square 
geeky accountant person. I was in in the nighttime. I was a cool alternative punk rocker and was playing music and traveling the country, playing with different bands. So that kind of time blurs a bit. Um, but I was doing that, and something something in my mind clicked and or blew up or broke. Uh, a tripwire got hit, and I figured I didn't want to do that anymore. And I'm still to this day trying to figure out why what happened um but yeah it just it kind of fizzled out my interest in that um i realized i i didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing that and i realized that i liked writing and it was a pure kind of by chance discovery really i was never a big writer at school or anything like that all my friends were a lot uh, more academic and, and and read a lot more i i read classics when i was a kid but not not particularly a, a bookwormy um, teenager or anything, but around the age of, I think it was about 22-ish, um, I discovered the world of literature and, and writing, and um, that coincided with me deciding I didn't want to do this job anymore. So I quit and went to study writing. I, I went to do a mature student degree, what have you, at a local college. And um, from there... I said, right, I need to get a job as a writer, or at least using words in some way. And that's mm. how I led to copy. But yeah, so that was my first job, really, the proper one. What was your course like? So the objective of the course was to train you to be a writer, which I think... It was quite interesting, really, because I didn't... So it was uh, uh, where I'm from. I'm from Grimsby and Cleethorpes, um, which is on the east coast of England. It's a kind of end of the line. Uh, no one comes here unless they need to kind of place. And it was even at that point, the, the colleges here, the, the Grimsby Institute has kind of got a bit bigger in the past few years um, since I left. And now there are more students doing stuff. But at the time, it was a very vocational place. If you was doing a, a course, you needed to have, it wasn't creative writing. It was billed as professional writing. And it was the aim that you would get a job afterwards kind of thing. And what the course was, was, was really uh, you learned a bit of how to write novels, how to write scripts, how to write nonfiction, how to write theatre. It, it had a, a, every genre kind of covered, and then you kind of picked what have you, whatever you wanted to do. I, at the time, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of P.G. Woodhouse and Ernest Hemingway and, and write um, fiction. That was what I was doing. I'd, I'd started writing kind of weird, funny short stories, um, quite surreal things and I'd, I'd done a two-hour night class just to kind of see if I could do it and and the tutor of that said that I had a kind of skill or what have you and that I should do something with it um, so doing that degree was was kind of just to kind of figure out what I was doing I didn't really understand how I was constructing sentences or paragraphs or tone of voice or anything like that um, so that's why I did that but there was no even at that point, there was nothing, no one said, you can go and be a copywriter. I, I had no idea what copywriting was. I had no um, concept of the fact that someone wrote sales messages. Um, and I, that sounds weird, but I think half the world still thinks that people very rarely act who writes this stuff. It's just there. It's like this kind of unseen thing. You, you, you don't put two and two together. So at the time, I had no idea what copywriting was. Uh, I did this course. My my final major project was to write a novel, which I wrote this uh, novel, which was okay. It got me a first and all that nonsense, but I read it now and it's disgusting and like the sentences and <laughs> it's like the most unclear thing in the world. It's It's amazing. But I did all that and that was nice. And then I needed to get a job writing. So I just applied for any any job uh, that had the word writer in it, junior writer or what have you. And obviously, because I was in Grimsby, the only uh, writing job you could really get around here at the time was for the local paper, which I didn't want to be a journalist. I, I knew very strongly I didn't want to uh, be a reporter or anything like that. I, I wanted to, a creative aspect to the job. That's not to say like good investigative journalists aren't creative and everything. Of course they are. But I didn't want to just tell like the story. Like, every day repeat the story of how the docks aren't working so much and there's some people down this street have stabbed each other kind of thing. I didn't want to just report on things. I wanted to create something. So that meant going to London or Manchester I was looking at um, and 
eventually, long story short, it, I got uh, saw this job application for a junior writer for Agora. I didn't at the time. The, the, the chap who employed me was a bit of a maverick, and the details of the job were very, very blurred. Um, and I didn't really know what the company was. I didn't know who I was even applying to. I was trying to do research like a good boy, as mum had taught me, to kind of find out about the company and who I was speaking to. Could not find any of that. And it, it later transpired that I'd found that the guy who interviewed me had like put a fake name and everything so that people didn't bother him and all this kind of stuff. But I went to the interview and um, after writing a very strange little story about trying to sell a suit and I went to that interview, I, I spoke for, we talked for like an hour and a half or something, mainly we joked and I came out of the interview and I still had no idea what copywriting was. Um, I certainly didn't understand what direct response marketing was or long copy or anything like that. Um, but I, the guy was really funny. We hit it off and it just seemed exciting and interesting. Um, so I was lucky enough to get the job and packed my bags like Dick Whittington and moved to London and started with what turned out to be Agora. Um, little did I know it was an international billion pound, billion dollar company with offices all over the world. We're kind of masters at this weird long copy um, stuff. And I basically sat down in an office surrounded by people and there's all these long copy sales letters everywhere. And I was kind of like, no one. No one reads this. Like, what are you talking about? This can't make money. Uh, little did I know it's a very successful and very effective way uh, to do marketing. And is that what you typically would be working on most days is, is long copy sales? Yeah. So I was I was very lucky um, that the chap who employed me um, was a very shall we say modern as a euphemism he was just a very relaxed bloke and um he basically said look you can there's two writing routes in this company you can either be an editor uh, who kind of comes up with the ideas of what to write about or you can be a copywriter who takes those ideas and finds a way to um put them into a sales message uh, and i kind of just did a bit of both for a while which which meant that i was learning how to write editorial how to engage with um, readers on a on an ongoing basis but also I was learning about copywriting and learning how to craft those um, ideas into more salesy messages and ultimately um, elicit direct responses from people to, to buy those so for many years I kind of just did both skirted both sides of that I I'd write a daily email um, about like what, what you'd now call a blog um, it was like 500 800 words so I'd be writing every day communicating directly with the readership and then I'd also be working on these long copy sales letters which is where the kind of big major skill of learning to write copy came from and there's there's decades of learning and I was very lucky that at the time uh, Bill Bonner who owns Agora and his main partner Mark Ford were both in uh, England to teach the the writers in the room at that point so I was lucky to be one of them um, so kind of worked with the, the founders of this company and, and they've spent decades analyzing direct response copy uh, in all forms from Ogilvy stuff to to kind of the niche stuff that no one's ever heard of and um, I just kind of sat there it was fantastic I was just ready to absorb as much as I could um, learn about how to construct these long sales letters which people still to this day like mostly look at you gone out when you start talking about them um, but I have since realized that everything I learned over that period is pretty much everything you need to know about how to persuade people to act. And um, you mentioned direct, so writing direct response. Can you explain what direct response is? Sure. So you, you basically, you can, you can look at, I mean, there's, there's two main forms of advertising. There's, there's direct response, there's indirect response. Indirect response is your Mad Men kind of stuff. It's your branding. It's your Coke advert on the, on the tube where you see the sexy guy drinking his Diet Coke. And the hope is that you have an indirect response that when you're in the supermarket, you'll think, oh, I saw that sexy man drinking his Coke. I'd like a sexy man right now. I'll buy a Coke. Direct response is where you open the magazine and there's a coupon at the bottom and it says, if you want this can of Coke, send this 
response to me now respond directly give me the money do the thing now um, and that is direct response ultimately so in my particular niche that i learned at that stage it was a case of selling um, financial advice financial newsletters and you would argue for why someone should um, buy this particular newsletter follow this particular expert's opinion and then you would ask at the end specifically for uh, the cash for the credit card details and you would try and elicit a direct response uh, it's not about branding it's not about kind of putting it in the reader's mind and then hoping they'll pick again another day it's you're looking to get a response there and then and that obviously lends into the advantage of uh, the copy being measurable you can test different variables and um, it's kind of do or die you, you can see if it works if it, if no one responds to it it doesn't work. There's no, oh, well, I like that. And I thought that was cool. And that was hip and, and what have you. And everybody's talking about it on Twitter. And, and it's got an award and all this kind of stuff, because it's really creative. It was simply no, that doesn't work. Try again, kind of thing. So it was, it was a good, uh, quite a cold and hard, kind of um, emotional roller coaster to go through when you spend all this time writing this thing, and then it flops. And you're like, Oh, God, what was the point in that? But when it works, it works very well. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm glad to, for myself, in hindsight, I came through that pathway. Um, there is the fact, I always quote Ogilvy, who said he would only employ writers and stuff who had spent two years in direct response because they understood the measurability, the importance of the sale, and it wasn't just about um, being cool kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's important. I think so much is lost down to subjectivity but as you say it, it really is binary does it work or doesn't it work the language of subjectivity of liking something dave trot would describe that as the language of the reader of the general public not the professional who's actually behind behind it sure i mean i i, I it, it warms my heart to see people like dave trot and um and others in the what i'd probably describe in a more indirect world really they, they operate in quite a quite a brand aware place um, but they are insightful enough and clever enough to give that kudos to the to the facts of life that we need to we need things to sell that's the whole point that's why we do what we do um, and I, I do there's a lot of people who talk a lot of guff on the internet and I see it every day but I'm glad there are there are big um, big names like that who who understand that it is um, the facts are important it's it's not just about what's cool and what people like around the room and it shouldn't be about that at all really should it what you say about Dave and and perhaps being more focused on the brand stuff but ultimately whether it's short or long term it all works or doesn't work it's just not an immediate response I suppose yes yeah no I think that's a good that's a good thing to remind actually as well because I always say like even even if you're a little tweet to me like everything in my mind is is direct response or should like be thought of in the um, in a framework of direct response in the sense that if you're building a brand even you're ultimately ending up in a direct response at some point so it needs to have a reason to exist if you're just doing it for fun for a laugh or because everybody else is doing it or you don't really if you haven't got a strategy behind your particular marketing or copy then it's it's not going to be effective anyway even a brand campaign should have as much as possible clear reasons to exist and clear uh, performance indicators that you can at least put some form of measurement on it to see that it's working. Yeah. I mean, I like to use a very simple metaphor of you're either watering the tree or you're picking the fruit. So I think your direct response stuff is clearly picking the fruit, but without sure. the brand building stuff, it wouldn't be there to pick in the first place. No, no, you're right. So going from there to sharing your masterclass, as Vicky articulated, with the art of the click. So how did that happen and why did you decide to give away so many secrets? Um, <laughs> I like the idea that the thought that there might be secrets in there. Um, <laughs> I, I'm very liberal with ideas and I, I think you should be. I think giving away how you do things and all that kind of thing. I've always been a fan of that. I can very early on um, work in... Uh, in Agora, just that whole mindset was always there. It was always being very open about things because if you, it's kind of that, uh, there's probably some stock phrase of like the 
brilliance of abundance or something along those lines. Uh, but if you share more things and more people are successful, if you're all nice to each other and you do that, like that's cool. You're going to, you're going to remember who gave you that tip and you're going to respect them and all that kind of stuff. So from a point of view of sharing secrets, I, I'll happily share how to do everything with anyone. Um, I'll even give people ideas as often as I can, because ultimately you'll have to come back to me if you want more ideas. So that was always a mindset for me. For, it's funny, I was speaking about this with my partner recently and talking, and like I'm kind of looking at doing my next book now and, and figuring that out. And we were talking about the first book. And the, the, the fact is, I was just kind of, I always knew, even when I stopped kind of doing the fiction writing and kind of decided that I'd get a job rather than kind of going down a more academic route, I always knew I wanted to just write and classically I'm, I just wanted to do a book like there's no kind of big secret around it I just wanted to write a book eventually it just so happened that over the years writing about direct response copy I just started accumulating a lot of stuff um, I obviously got this knowledge and was able to kind of communicate that knowledge so it just started kind of coming together and I thought well actually I think I might have enough for a book here um, and then as I was doing that a load of serendipitous things occurred. Like I just uh, somehow got talking to Harriman House. They were interested in doing a book. So we started talking about what that might look like, um, had some back and forth with them, had most of it in place, then just had to kind of move some stuff around and add some bits and bobs here. And it just kind of, I almost see that book as like my, first decade in advertising it's everything i learned from direct response um and i tried to boil it down into a fun easy to read thing and started to kind of find my style um and that's that's where we are um i've since learned that book kind of opened the door to me realizing that i can write how i want to write and i can share information in the way i want to share information which is, um, it sounds a bit weird, and I don't know if I'm making a very <laughs> cogent point, but, <laughs> but the, I, I kind of, I've figured out that you don't need to like define yourself in fiction <laughs> or, or non-fiction or writing about advertising or not writing about advertising. I've just realized you can just, if you write interesting things, people respond to them. So, um, so yeah, so that's how the book came about. I uh, just realized I had enough information to produce the first book but then I've, I've realized since that i've got a lot more to share so I'm, I'm quite excited about the new stuff that's coming how have you taken the response to the book so before you answer that just to add some context david mm -hmm. ogilvy described drayton bird as someone who knows more about direct marketing than anyone in the world mm -hmm. Drayton Bird described your book or responded to your book by saying, don't write another word till you've read The Art of the Click. I know I had to pay a lot of money to Drayton for that. Um, <laughs> and I've got a picture of Drayton, uh, very drunk, uh, that I'm still holding captive uh, to from the world. If he, does, if he doesn't say nice things about me continuously, I wondered why he went I, will, for a few I will release it. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's very nice. It's very kind. I've learned um, it's a funny old thing when you start getting a bit of um, publicity and it's a strange game. Um, people are equally kind and nasty and it, it's a very weird uh, world we live in. Um, but it's been fantastic and the, the feedback to the book has been absolutely amazing. And the, the, the biggest catch is I spend half my time trying to create genuine emotions and, and authenticity in, in sales messages and stuff. And I realize the biggest place I need to display how genuine I am is in the it's in the thanking people for the response to my book but I always think I just sound like disingenuous but I, I anyone who's read the book and anyone who's posted a positive review or, or emailed me shared things on Twitter it, it's just fantastic it, you cannot beat the feeling of people reading what you've put down uh, what you've said and saying, actually, I found that really useful, really helpful. It's inspired me or what have you. And there's been some fantastic comments from people. It's it's ace. It really is genuinely, genuinely ace. Uh, people like Drayton saying that, that 
very kind. I, I sent a copy to Drayton and, and he had a read and he didn't need to say that, but he did. And he wrote a very nice thing to his uh, readers, uh, which is obviously great. A lot of people respect Drayton and, and he's a massive name in the business. Um, so that was fantastic. But equally, people who have, I, I can remember one of the first reviews I got was from a, a, a chap who runs a little snooker website selling snooker equipment and he'd mm. he'd literally taken what i'd written got some ideas improved his the copy on his website and made more sales of his stuff and i was just like how brilliant is that like that is uh, it's just fantastic so I, every level across the board has, has been fantastic to receive that information it's just nice to produce something that people find worth worth something i i as I say, when I did my uh, degree, I was kind of thinking about doing a master's and, and trying to write novels and all that kind of stuff. But something in my head clicked and I thought, well, I love literature so much and I feel like I haven't got enough experience to write something quite yet. And it, in my mind, that's kind of stopped me from going down that path. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll get a little bit more experience first. And I'm glad that after 10 years of writing copy, I, I've kind of produced this thing and, and there is enough information in there. There is enough insight that people have found it useful. So that's that's been really nice. And the book is sprinkled with superb tips, as I kind of alluded to earlier. Is there any in particular that you like to or you can share with us on the pod? Tips, tips, tips. I would always say uh, read everything loud. Uh, that's one of my favourite tips because no one does it. But if they did, it would be it would help you improve your writing so much. I would say don't write a thing until you know what you're writing. Copywriting is is a bit of a flawed word because uh, it puts so much focus on the actual writing of the thing, but it is an ideas game. And the majority of time you'll waste writing is because you don't quite know what to write. Uh, a message will be less clear. Um, it will be more confusing if you don't know what you're trying to say. So I would encourage everyone to spend time thinking before they try writing. It, it's, it's so often people rush and try and crack something out. Like it's it's the last thing that people think of in many cases. Um, and I'm, when I said I know like agencies and that sat, sit around tables and think about this, but but small businesses, small to medium businesses who are or, or freelancers or people who are on their own and think well I'll do the copy myself I can do that there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that but they often just kind of write what's in their head straight away and don't give themselves time to think about it so think about it first and then edit it massively afterwards as well but other than that this I mean there's loads of tips you could give but uh, I, I think one of my most popular ones from what people tell me is the purely technical act of making your uh, in your word document making your margins 13 and your uh, font size like 10 aerial 10 or courier new 10 depending on how your eyes are and that will and then never writing more than four sentences in that format and you will see that all of your writing is much clearer it sounds ridiculous but it actually <laughs> I, I still i still use it to this day i still write everything in that format and uh, i just noticed that it, it it regulates uh, the length of sentences, the length of paragraphs, um, and it it helps you look at things on the page much clearer. And do you read your copy out loud? I do, yeah. Um, I would say, being honest, probably 70% of the time. Uh, sometimes I don't. If I'm in the cafe, that it's usually quite hard to do. Um, but at home, I will, I will read it out aloud. And um, I've, I've found over time that it's uh, a, a quicker way to edit stuff yeah i imagine you can weed out jargon quite successfully doing that yeah just you, you stutter on certain things uh you say something and it just sounds like so stupid and you just think what no one would ever say that um and i'd like to think i get kudos here and there from different people who have no agenda to be nice to me who say <laughs> that when they read my stuff it's kind of quite friendly and and and, and open and, and authentic and i think that might be one of the um, one of the main reasons behind why that effect is there, because I do try and make sure it's it flows. It's easy to read if you were to read it out aloud. Yeah, I think um, when done badly, copy can have so much 
friction when you read it and it makes it hard to read so being friendly and open is often the best way to be there's a great tip from bob levinson who was behind a lot of the great vw ads and one of his tips was when he was writing he would always pretend he was writing a letter to a friend and he'd start off dear charlie and then he'd write some copy of what he needed to tell charlie and he said at the end just cross out dear charlie and you're probably going to be close enough Oh yeah, definitely. I, I actually, I, I can't have this stuff. It's just stuff that I've learned from other people. Like none, none, none of this stuff is is like particularly original from me. I'm sure some of it is. I'm probably too humble in a typically English way. But um, Bill Bonner, literally, like from the moment um, he first kind of teaching taught us how to write copy. Um, had this idea of of you you speak to people like your the barstool test like would you sit at a bar and explain it to your friend uh, that salutation there's a bit in my book where I, I advise everybody to whatever piece of copy you're writing even if it's just a facebook advert start with uh, dear reader or if you can pick someone you know dear dear mom or what have you delete it afterwards but just never forget that you are one person talking to another person um it, it, yes, it's a mass media, but only one person reads it at a time uh, to get that connection. So it's it's a great piece of advice to to always kind of write Dear Charlie at the top and sign it off as well. Sign it off by yourself. Say best wishes, um, Glenn, at the end, because it reminds you that you're you're not some kind of ghost writer like hidden behind the screens you're a person talking to another person and uh, you you have a responsibility i think uh, when you you're writing copy that it needs to be human it needs to it needs to come from someone and you need to stand behind what you're saying so i would always uh, try and start with a dear reader but also sign it off uh, best wishes as well yeah well your, your point there on um originality i mean to be honest the longer i work in this injury the more i realize that that's it's largely irrelevant i mean i feel like a huge fraud whenever i share any advice because it typically you can probably trace it back to the likes of dave trott mark ritson rory sutherland richard shotton i mean there's latterly they can probably trace it back even further so really oh definitely um, i think the real value is it is in sharing anything you can share that's valuable to anyone and definitely definitely i i there's two points on that like num- number one i i always remember we we i love uh, a band called don caballero it's like this uh, esoteric chicago math rock band and i thought they were like when we were growing up we were like oh my god we have discovered like the newest music in the world it was kind of um off kilter timings and stuff and what have you we were like this is amazing no one's ever done this before and then I think we played it to someone and they went, oh, they've been listening to King Crimson, haven't they? And I was like, what? Who's King Crimson? So I went back and listened to King Crimson and was like, oh, right, that's all King Crimson. It's the same. Like, that's what they've been doing. And then you realize that they were just going back to something until you get to Mozart or something on those lines. So yeah. it, it always <laughs> happens. It always happens. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then I suddenly realized, like, why do they keep making, like, Brideshead revisited films or, like, Pride and Prejudice? Why do they keep doing it over and over again? Like, wasn't the original good enough and it's it's to get to new generations and people react to things differently and, and on that reason and, and I, there's a lot of copywriters out there sharing advice and everything and and a lot of them feel like uh, imposter syndrome and all this kind of thing but the fact of the matter is the way you talk and the way you message something and the way you talk about that particular thing even if it's not an original thing even if you've been influenced by someone else the way you talk about it someone might react to it slightly differently and it might get them that time someone might not listen to Roy Sutherland and think ah oh, do you know what he's talking nonsense but then they hear you say it and they go yeah do you know what that yeah I never thought about that before yeah I think it's the other way around to be fair, Glenn, but okay yeah well maybe but at the same at the same time I think so long as everybody uh if, if you know where you got it from cite it tell tell people to go back and and dig dig into the history of advertising because there, there is so much good stuff there um you go back as you you mentioned a generation there of, of fantastic thinkers but go back to claude hopkins and all those people and go back to all that there's, there's so much out there um but yeah but you can always tell your story uh and i would advise anybody listening to this like never feel like an imposter in that respect because someone out there will relate to your telling of it in a slightly different way and that's got a lot of value to it yeah and as per your great example there with 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 the band in some instances it will be the first time anyone's heard it so you know just let them enjoy that exactly exactly i won't try and pronounce this because i'll trip myself over and sound like a, an idiot so i'm going to abbreviate it to fk 
score. Yep. Can you explain what the FK score is um, and why it's such a useful tool to use in copywriting? Sure. Um, it's a bit of a bit of a controversial one. This I always find whenever I try and write something about it, everybody's like, "Oh no, no, no! It, you don't know. It doesn't work. It's too. It's too um, technical. To this thing. To this or that. However, it's for me, and I say it as a disclaimer. It's just a nice tool you can use um, to check you, yourself um, if you're looking for a bit of kind of guidance or just to a double check. What it, the FK score refers to. I'm not so good on the. Uh, pronunciation but i think it's flesh flesh kincaid two people it was rudolph flesh or fleisch and i think it was stephen kincaid i'm not quite sure but they were um basically uh i want to say scientists but i'm not sure if that's the right word but they were basically doing studies into uh readability and they were doing it largely it was for the u.s uh, army and they were trying to kind of do it for manuals and stuff so that obviously in the u.s army you need to very clearly communicate things quickly, efficiently, and without any kind of um, interpretation or possible weird interpretations. So that's where all this came from. And they came up with these readability scores and readability tests. And it was based on like the US grading systems at school. And they were looking at um, basic like syllables uh, in words and all this and how many words are in a sentence, dividing it all up and all that kind of stuff. You can spend ages like arguing whether it was how valuable that is or what have you. It's completely up to you. But for me and what we, um, I was taught it by Mark Ford, who works with Agora. And he used to, he was very strict with it. And he'd say, if your FK score is below eight, sorry, above eight, I'm not reading it. You have, I, I know that you don't know what you're talking about and you have not communicated your idea correctly. And he, he was a, he's a very um, direct bloke and fantastic in that sense. And it, but he was just like, no, I'm not reading it if it's above eight. The reason he did that is because basically this FK score, um, it, it, you get this, this the FK reading, reading ease or something, which is a score, like a double digit score, and you're looking to be around, around 50 to 80 kind of thing. And then you have the FK score, which is uh, the grade score. It's like the equivalent grade or something that you'd have in America, in the American school system. But basically anything above eight, it starts to get a bit complicated. Uh, but what they did in Agora was that um, someone took all of the editorial pieces, all of the writing from like really like good writers and, and really interesting people who had been writing for years um, who have massive like uh, stats on open rates and all this kind of stuff. So, and it just so happened that the, the writers with the most engagement, the people who um, were most successful in the way they communicated with their readers uh, happened to have the lowest FK scores. So Mark took that on board, started doing this um, as a basic test. And now I will do that with every piece of writing I'll, I'll look at. Uh, I'll, I'll just run it. You can run it in Word. It's just at the, like the grammar check-ins. You can turn it on and it will say FK reading ease and FK score. And if your writing is above eight, you probably means that you are not um, clearly writing about you, You're not posing your idea in a very clear way. You, you will find a way to, uh, if you can cut it down below eight, it means it, it will force you to think more clearly about how you want to communicate your idea. Um, so that's how I use it. There's a load of people out there, like I, last time I posted an article, people were like, oh no, you, you, you could get a different score here. All you have to do is do like little words and then it changes. You can do all that if you want, fine. That's, that's cheating the system. But if you just take it in a very face value way, if you see that your writing is higher than an eight, it probably could do with some editing. And it, I, I use it in, in, invariably if a, a, a company comes to me and they're going, our copy is a bit like crap and it's not working. People, are, it's a bit wordy and all this kind of stuff. If you run, a, run the FK score, you'll see straight away it's like 12 to 20. And it's like, right, there's your first problem. Let's get that down. And then you can very quickly break it down and, and show the, the, uh, the client very effectively, this is why your copy's there, because the readability scores are out. If you cut them down below eight, um, like half of my writing is like five or something like that. If you get it down to that, it, it's a very quick way to kind of evidence um, 
how much clearer you can be um, and your uh, use of English, shorter words, shorter sentences, simpler words uh, with less syllables. It's, it, it just pl plays into a much clearer um, piece of writing. Um, and would you advise people use that tool across the board? So, so you know, regardless of the type of copy they're writing. Yeah, it's it, yeah. I use it for everything. Just have a run. Don't like shoot yourself if it's above twelve every time. Like that's fine, kind of thing. You can make excuses for that or what have you. Uh, and there will be exceptions all the time. But if you just run uh, a piece of copy and and have a check of it, chances are, uh, if you're honest with yourself, you could probably, if it's higher than eight. Um, as, a, as a general rule of thumb, chances are you could probably be clearer in your copy. Fantastic. I was going to ask you another question, actually, but I've, I've noticed that it's similar to one of the listener questions I've got for you. So we might jump straight there if, if, if no that problem. works with you. Yeah. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us. <laughs> so we've had a couple in. So starting with Mark, who is a copywriter. He says, you've said in the past that anyone can be a copywriter. Mm -hmm. You clearly haven't seen my mum's spelling, so that is bullshit, <laughs> surely. Poor Mark's mum. My, my heart <laughs> I know. I do hope Mark's mum's listening. A budding copywriter in the making, and her dreams have been quashed by her own son. Um, can anybody be a copywriter? I believe anybody can write copy. Um, that, that is simply a true fact. Can anybody, the, the question we're really asking is, can anyone write effective copy? I believe, given a couple of hours with Mark's mum, this already sounds weird, what I'm saying, but... Um, <laughs> question two. <laughs> yeah, given a couple of hours, I could improve her copywriting. Um, I, the, way I, the way I look at it is that um, really, a, really good copywriters generally have a, a, some kind of innate talent um, to write. That's not necessarily they've just they've been writing from birth. I, I've just last episode of my podcast, I was speaking to Gareth Hancock, who's a great copywriter. He's got a really good tone of voice, really good turn of phrase, and he was a, a bricklayer, um, and he completely kind of stumbled into copywriting by chance. So obviously there was something there in him that could do that. So that's an advantage. If you, however, rather than using Mark's mum as an example, I would probably use a more practical thing of like a, a business owner or a small business person who's trying to do improve their copy, but they, they can't write copy. They know about their product and everything. There are, but they might not be the best writer. There are technical ways, and I've tried to share as many of these as I can in the book, um, there are technical things you can do to improve your copywriting. Um, you're probably never going to sit there and like produce a 10,000 word sales letter that's going to be effective, but you can certainly use the technical skills that you learn. I'm talking about things like FK score, understanding that if you use shorter sentences, smaller paragraphs, um, simpler words, if you turn features into benefits, um, if you then try, if you instead of saying me and I all the time and we, you say you, you focus on the reader. If you do all of these things, you can improve your copywriting um, by by percentage x will you become a fantastic copywriter and do that innately if you practice long enough i think you could probably get kind of good and i think mark's mum could probably practice and do that so i do think anyone could be could write better copy um is probably a on the fence way of doing that um as i get older i think it it, it does help the more innate you are at thinking and and uh, expressing ideas of course that that's it's all really about ideas to be honest with you but i just think i always say that more to suggest that um there's uh, there's no need for bad copy like if people take the time and and think about things logically and apply the the numerous ideas and and kind of tips that are out there not just in my book in everybody's books and, and, and just free on the internet you can write better copy anyone can write better copy than they're currently doing i don't know if that answers mark's question but hopefully it does in a way i think i think it does i think it's anything it should the the story you mentioned earlier about the snooker business is exactly that it was a good example of how someone using the art of the click managed to make their sales copy more effective all for the 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 price of 14 pound 99 so um nine pound 62 yeah. at the moment is it really yeah it, yeah, I think it's. It, I, I'm assuming that means it's selling well on Amazon, 
because they keep putting it down so they can make more of a loss. But um, yeah, so it's nine pounds sixty two. What a brilliant, wow. brilliant number. <laughs> Less than a tenner. Yeah. Less than a tenner. I just had a review today actually saying uh, that it was worth more than a five hundred pound course on copywriting or whatever. But what are those things? But yeah, no, I, I do think you, you don't need to buy my book. There's, there's stuff all over the internet. It's um, if if you want to write good, better copy, and you should. There is no reason. Anyway, shouldn't you should take the time, find a few tricks, and just like get your little secret five things that you check every time and improve it a little bit because the the results, the the effect on the business, or, or ultimately anybody trying to get a client in any field uh, will will be there. Um, and just to clarify, you should buy the book. Well, yes. <laughs> Question two. So it's quite a selfish one here. I've stuck one of my questions in because I'm a bit of a word nerd. No problem. Um, certainly in terms of letter forms and typography. So as I am a typography geek, I'm keen to know if you have a favourite letter. Favourite letter. Hmm, that's an interesting one. My favourite letter. Um, I always encourage my guests and that to think straight off the top of the head and say the first thing rather than trying to be cool. Um, I, my first thought was to say g which is just not correct just because that's well it's obviously giles and glenn so we've both got the g um i'd I'd like the g i like do you know what i do like i like the lowercase g's in what your typography expert with the loop full loop at the bottom descender yeah is that the is that like a times new roman or no it's probably a georgia or a garamond kind of thing have them in but um i do like those g's i like um I like X is always useful. Um, I use a lot of X's to fill in spaces when I'm writing copy and don't quite know what to say. Um, mm. But yeah, T, T is a good thing. I'm thinking of cheesy marketing reasons now. I, always, I think it was Stephen Pinker or someone like that who said that all marketers are like T-shaped and that you, you have to understand sales and then your T, the, the line down, is your specific skill. So marketer or, or copywriter or whatever. But that's just too cliche. So let's let's move on. I'll, I'll, <laughs> go, with, I'll go with G. Yeah, I'll go with G. I, I spend enough time with G. So. Okay, it was nice symmetry there with the X and the T as well. I wondered if that was your reason. Uh, maybe, maybe. And, and, and you love a pst. I love a pst, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, I'm sneaking in another question here. So what's that all about? What's that all about? It, well, I think, I can't remember where I saw it. I, I think I might have to give this to Bill Bonner because uh, he, he wrote for years. The man just writes every day and still does. Um, but once I think I saw like a PS that just said at the end. And I thought it was such a visually brilliant thing. And it made you lean in. It was like, wow, like that's a visceral reaction I've had to a printed word like to see to, to lean in like that and I adopted that over the years I think I can only assume and kind of would do it for PSs here and there and what have you and then I could I, I think I was bold enough to do it in a subject line once and the subject line worked really well and then a, a good friend of mine a guy called Ben who I used to work with he clocked that I kept using this kind of thing he, he, he respected the uh, audacity of it and the silliness of it but the effectiveness of it and so that it became a private joke between us um, and then I, when it came to writing the book I, I just thought I had to leave it in there and uh, and it just so worked for that kind of postscript um, in copy is always useful so I, I still love it and I've, I've started seeing it around um, if I was a megalomaniac I'd start thinking people were stealing stuff from me but uh, I just think it's a brilliant it's just a visceral thing. It, I think maybe you're noticing it though. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? Of course, yeah. yeah. So so I um so with my notes that I've got in front this is terrible, terrible podcast material, by the way, or terrible audio, but I've got it I've got the word printed out in front of me. And <laughs> it's occurred to me, A, that it's a, such a lovely word to look at, but B, I I don't know when I last saw that in print. I don't think I've ever seen it in print, perhaps. Yeah, no, I I'm very big on I think people probably think I'm mad, especially um non-copywriting when I go to businesses and or there's, there's a section in the book I think where I talk about trying to get the reader to nod yes so they're agreeing with you and to try and elicit um, like physical responses to your language um, we all 
know the phrase lol when we laugh out loud and something and, and we've all experienced that moment when you do laugh out on the train and you, and you you have a physical reaction to the image that's been created uh, by the writer uh, i always remember there's a bit in uh, douglas adams hitchhiker's guide where he describes um three it's, i think it was like a, a ship escaping or something and there's three scientists who are kind of stood there with white clipboards uh, white coats and, and clipboards and he describes i think it's like the hulavu or something it's this alien but it's just blue it's just the the concept and color blue or something and just the way he described it i, I it was one of the first times i laughed physically to the written word and was like wow that's interesting i've i've physically reacted to that so i've always been very much you you'll see in my writing a lot of you see you get that right and there's a question mark so it's people just trying to push people to start going yeah i do and nod along because if you're in that positive mindset if you're if you're thinking yes 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 when you come to say at the end would you like to give me the money and buy this thing now it, you're, you're more physically into it and you're doing that the is a more is a is another way of doing that it, it draws you in when you say no matter how silly you you there's a suspension of disbelief going on with any piece of writing at where you know you're being talked to on the page like you know it's not that person talking to you but you suspend your disbelief and you you read it as though it is or, or at least the most effective copy makes you do that and that that just, it brings you it, it draws you in closer to the screen and and that's when you can start making a real engagement with someone. So so I, I think it's I, it's a silly thing. It's a fun thing. But I actually think behind it there's a there's a very uh, useful, um, interesting line of thought uh, to pursue. So now I'm dying to know what you think of LOL. Do you know what I, I I'll be honest. I for years thought it meant um, love you lots or something. Lots of no. I thought it meant lots of lots love. of love. So did the so did the mum of a friend of mine who texted her to say your uncle has died. Lol. <laughs> well, mine luckily wasn't as bad as that. But I I I realised my cousin kept saying lots of and I, or something, and I thought why is she, why is she being so friendly? Like that's weird. <laughs> and then it took me ages. Like, I'm an idiot, really, when it comes down to it. But yeah, so I I don't particularly like these things, or I. I probably made out like I didn't used to. And as I get older, I realize that you do have to keep remaking Pride and Prejudice because people change. And if you if you sit around denying the existence of text speak and emojis and all this kind of stuff, you are very quickly going to become forgotten yourself. And in the world of advertising, in, in, a, in a world where, as a copywriter particularly, but any creative in, in the advertising arena, if you aren't able to talk in people's language then you're going to be in in trouble so i would rather not use lol myself but i uh, i accept its existence as i do emojis yeah i think you're right i think if you um unless you accept that you do tend to age quicker so we come to the final part of the interview now glenn with our four pertinent poses that we like to put to all of our guests so question sure. one is what advice would you give to your younger self um, I would say to stop rushing. Uh, I was always very fast and very eager to get everything done there at that minute and um, probably wasn't as strategic in my thinking as, as I often could be. Uh, so I'd definitely say slow down and be more strategic in things. And overall, in a kind of, oh, look at me, aren't I wise, I would probably say to stop, to realise that money isn't as, is as important as time. Time is the uh, the real important thing in life and that's not just from a personal point of view that is from um, understanding what makes people tick and uh, connecting with people when it comes to writing copy your, your time is the most valuable asset people have and, and you should speak to that as often as you can absolutely um, number two then if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be and why um, I thought about this and there's I realized I try to be really positive in everything I do in, in this world, in this industry, my presence online and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't like to slag copy off and all this kind of stuff. And then when you posed this question to me originally, I was like, God, I, I thought of so many things. and <laughs> I had such deep anger for so many things. But I will go with, I, I don't like, there's in the industry, advertising industry, I think there's a lot of insecurity 
and that kind of shows itself in like a jealousy and a bitchiness that sometimes comes about and i don't think it's helpful uh, necessarily um i think we could turn some of the um bad mouthing and um mockery of things into um, a more positive thing about how what, what is good what is good advertising what is um, how you should speak to people, how you should communicate, uh, how you can improve messaging and all that kind of stuff, um, share in a more positive way. Yeah, I think that's good advice for me personally too. I'm, I'm very <laughs> very grumpy and moody and quick to point out things which aren't good. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've, it, it's partly through, as I say, when you get in the public eye, people people can say anything and you just think, well, I didn't mean that. Like, what are you talking about? Um and then you realize actually that frivolous comment of someone else, like someone's probably behind that. Like there's probably, there might be a copywriter behind like the worst piece of copy who's desperately trying to make some money to like pay for their housing bills or whatever kind of thing. And they've been forced by the client to do X, Y, and Z. And I, I suddenly thought, yeah, actually like treat your neighbor as you wish to be treated kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. We've all got bills to pay. So I'm sure we've all done work that we don't want to pin up and, have everyone judge it so yeah wise words um are there any books that you would recommend i mean you've named a few heroes and, and mentors already so the likes of david ogilvy bill bonner and, and mark ford etc but there any any particular books that you think people should buy yeah i mean i'm, I'm a big reader i i'm obsessed with books to the point where it'll probably bankrupt me one day um but i i'm a big fan of reading uh, widely. I, I don't think you should just read uh, books on copy and everything. Uh, there's some fantastic ones um, and read them all. But I would, whenever asked this question, I always encourage people to think about books outside of uh, the industry. I love Paul Auster. Anything by him has had a big effect on my writing. Milan Kundera has been fantastic. I would encourage people to, if you're a copywriter particularly, or if you want to understand how people think, I personally think reading a lot of philosophy is helpful. Um, I think a book called Sophie's World, most people have probably heard of that. It's, uh, I think it's Justine Gardner, um, which kind of summarizes um, a lot of philosophy is really good. Just makes you think about how people think. Um, if you want to go hardcore, there's uh, Bertrand Russell, History of uh, Western Philosophy is very useful. Um, aside from that, you read your Dave Trotts, read a book called Great Leads by uh, Mark Ford and John Ford, um, two Agora guys. Uh, that's really good. That may be a, probably a few people in the industry haven't come across. That's a, a really good read. But yeah, just read as, read as much and as often as you can. Don't try and consume it dead fast. Take your time. Just It's not about how much you read. It's just about reading and getting new ideas and, and being inspired. Good advice. And we always dedicate the show to someone and we bestow or hospital pass, depending on your point of view, to our guest who also has to give their reason why. So over to you, Glenn. Um, so I thought about this and I've dedicated my book to my partner, Ruth, who's been a massive support. So I can't, I'm not going to do that. And then I was thinking of copywriters who don't get as much um, credit and, and uh, press or what have you and then I thought well how the hell do I pick between like the massive network of people I've, I've uh, discovered on Twitter in the past few years so I think a good way of doing that is to dedicate it to the hashtag content club UK which is every Tuesday a load of copywriters um, UK copywriters get together and share questions and, and answers and I think that's really useful uh, so I would kind of dedicate it to them if I'm going to have to pick one uh, I will pick Gareth Hancock, who is the most recent guest on my podcast, simply because he wrote me such a fantastic advanced comment for the book. So I will roundabout way of sitting on the fence, Contact Club UK, but also uh, big up to Gareth. Brilliant. So as a final call to action, please, everyone buy Glenn's book. It is fantastic. And you don't have to take my word for that when you've got Vicky Ross, Richard Shotton, Drayton Bird and dozens others. Glenn also has a fantastic podcast, All Good Copy, which I would also highly recommend. Uh, we'll share links to everything we've discussed, all of the books, the Content Club UK hashtag on the podcast. 
homepage, but how else can people get more Glenn Fisher? Um, they can visit allgoodcopy.com, uh, which is where I do like a weekly thing, uh, either posting the podcast or I'll write a little article about giving like one tip away. Uh, so that's always there. Uh, you can follow me generally what I'm doing, although it's a bit kind of self-indulgent on theglenfisher.com. That's my kind of what I'm up to. Uh, but that does detail anything like uh, speaking. Uh, I've got like a few uh, talks coming up. Uh, I'm down in London uh, in October. Before that, I'm in Leeds in June. Um, and I'll be doing a few more of those. So that's a good way, way to find that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at allgoodcopy. Um, or you can find pictures of me and my dog on Instagram if that floats your boat. Uh, but you can generally find me in places. I'm nearly the most famous Glenn Fisher on the internet, although I <laughs> there, there is a Canadian hockey player, I think, who's still slightly outdoing me on Google. But um, Oh, you should do what Stephen Colgan did and just change the spelling of your name so that it is unique. Oh, don't get, don't get me started on that. I've got two M's, and uh, it's like a, as soon as I can see people with one M's, spelling with one end it's like a death raise through the computer so uh, <laughs> I need to stick, to, stick to two ends but yeah no so people can find me anyway yeah <laughs> amazing well thank you for joining us Glenn it's been a real pleasure to talk to you no problem thank you for having me and thank you to everyone who's willingly let their ears be bent by us for the last hour please continue to share and get in touch with the show with anything from guest requests to questions you want us to field in upcoming episodes Simply find us on Twitter or email us at hello at calltoaction.co. I can't get no call to action. I can't get no call to action, but I try. Try.